Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, we'll break down the technical baggage that led to the new freak SSL flaw, the security ramifications of top executives using their own personal services, and why we just need to stop hiding file extensions. And then it's some great feedback, a rock and roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi everyone and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 204 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on March 5th, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, Ting, DigitalOcean, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Why our live stream? I'm glad you asked. That's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. You should go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hello, Alan. I'm excited. You know me. I love a double recording session. Mm -hmm. uh, even if it did mean right before the show started, I got red, sticky water juice all over the studio kitchen. Well, don't shake your carbonated beverages before you open them. Do you think Rekai will clean that up while I'm doing the show? No. <laughs> Probably not. No. Uh, all right, Alan. Well, we've got a lot to cover uh, in our mm -hmm. first episode today. And uh, this one I saw bouncing all over the web, but I saw a lot of discussion or I saw a lot of votes in our subreddit this week. The freak flaw. I, don't even, I didn't even get a chance yep. to read about this, and I believe this is where we're going to start, correct? Yes, it is. All right, break it down for me, sir. Right. Uh, so, yeah, so as you said, this is all over uh, the news recently. And... Uh, so to really understand uh, what's going on here, we have to kind of have a, a mini history lesson first. Okay. If you go way back into the early days of encryption and stuff on the internet, and maybe even back further into the 80s, the U.S. government had restrictions on uh, cryptography. Yeah. So the idea was we don't want you know the Russians or anybody else to have really strong encryption because then we won't be able to break their encryption and read their messages. So uh, they have uh, basically, starting in World War II, they considered encryption to be a weapon. And so exporting to another country was uh, like arms smuggling. Yeah. Right? Um, and so then eventually they're like, well, you know, some products are going to need some encryption or whatever. So uh, they passed the law and they restricted it to, I think it was like 40 or 56 bits of encryption. Okay. Uh Sorry. Uh, Are you mathing right now? No, I'm fixing the show notes, but uh, because of the zoom, the cursor is oh, yes, actually where yes. it looks like it is. I hate that. Yeah, I know. I hate that too. And you know what's even worse is I have uh, on a high DPI display, I have to be zoomed in at 200% sometimes, and then it really gets crazy. <laughs> it's just all over. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, there was a, a law that prevented uh, strong encryption from being exported. So, when Netscape came up with SSL to provide uh, encryption for websites, they designed into the protocol this idea of a downgrade to export encryption, okay. which is the encryption everyone else was allowed to have. Right. Uh, you know, the U.S. and Canada and certain other countries were allowed to yeah. have strong encryption, yeah. but everybody else could only have weak export right. encryption. Right. Uh, and and so there was this system built in where uh, you know we would use nice 1024-bit RSA keys that are nice and strong, but everybody else can only have 512. Uh, that way, the NSA could crack the stuff uh, without going through too much effort. But it mm -hmm. was good enough for commercial use. Mm -hmm. right? Your competitors couldn't crack it, but the NSA could. Uh, so, you know, the web servers that served SSL would negotiate down to the 40-bit DES encryption 
using a 512-bit RSA key if the user's browser didn't support the stronger crypto. And you know, that law is actually one of the historic reasons why OpenBSD was always built and sold from Canada to get around that uh, uh-huh. restriction. Right? Uh, and that's also why the MD5 uh, password hashing algorithm was come up with because nothing stronger could be exported mm. and so on. Uh, anyway, this, the restrictions on str- uh, strong cryptography export from the U.S. were changed in 1996. Okay. And that's when we started allowing things like AES-128 uh, and so on to be exported and everybody could have the good crypto. I remember. I remember like even certain types of computers were classified as, were not classified, yep. were marked, was labeled as like not okay for yeah, export. Yeah, if, it, if, it if it's more than so many MIPS or whatever, yeah. you couldn't uh, yeah. export it and so yes. on. Yes, yes. It seems like, that seems crazy now, doesn't it? Yeah, it's like, oh, you know, you can't uh, export supercomputers to Iran. And that but, was the know, 90s. buy a thousand regular computers. That was the 90s. Yeah, uh, and not until 1996 did they finally stop the nonsense. That's funny. Uh, so this new attack takes advantage of the fact that the code for this export crypto was never removed from servers or browsers. Oh, of course, of course, of course, of course. Yeah. So an attacker who's in a man-in-the-middle position can then modify the initial request that the client sends to the website to set up the encryption. So the encryption is not set up yet, so the encryption isn't, uh, A, the message is in plain text, and B, the... Um, uh, the authenticity of the message isn't verified yet because you haven't set up the encryption. So if you're in a man-in-the-middle position and you know uh, Chris is trying to go to a website, I can intercept his request, modify it so that instead of asking for strong crypto, he asks for weak export crypto. Mm-hmm. And then he goes and talks to the server. The server's like, oh, you only support export crypto? Okay, let me set that up for you. And then goes back. Now, the client on Chris's side should be like, no, that's not what I asked for. But because of a bug, it's not. Right. Huh. All right. And so it just accepts this weak connection and goes, and, you know, now the bad guy can do stuff. So this is also compounded by another thing, though. It turns out that generating these keys used to be relatively expensive, right? You know, normally, like, you generate this one big key and then you would just use that and come up with a ten- sens- or, uh, temporary key and so on. But for the export crypto, uh, by default, Apache only generates that key when it starts. Mm. So it reads your key, makes up a, a weak uh, export crypto key, and it doesn't create a new one. It doesn't cycle that key until you restart Apache. So that means if you're a bad guy and you're going to set this up, if you find some website that still has export crypto, uh, then you can basically get that key uh, and then go and factor it. So that requires a lot of computer power, but uh, turns out that if you rent some of the really big uh, GPU instances of... Uh, like the NVIDIA kind? Yeah, the NVIDIA GPU instances on Amazon. Yeah. You can crack a 512-bit RSA key in seven and a half hours at a cost of about $100. That's worth it. Yeah. Yeah. So bad. I find this website that's got some sensitive information I want or the viewer, the users of it are going to submit information to it, like... a store that accepts credit cards or whatever. I go and factor that key for a hundred bucks and now I can sit there and intercept every connection uh, going to that box and because I have the private key decrypted or uh, brute force now, I can decrypt all of the sessions and see all the information going back and forth. (laughs) The other thing is because of the way SSL works, that key is what's used to make sure the message wasn't modified but because I have the key, I can then modify the message that the website sent you, say, 
add a flash exploit into the page you're looking at and re-sign it. And then when you your end gets the message... Take uh, advantage of will, Superfish. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when your end gets the message, it will see, oh, this is signed by the right certificate, and so it hasn't been modified. Right? So even though you're uh, modifying the message, it's not detected because you have the private key to re-sign the message. Hmm. Interesting, Alan. <clears throat> yeah. And the uh, researchers were from the University of Michigan, right? Uh, uh, oh, sorry, the researchers found this were from Microsoft and a French university. Oh, okay. Uh, but then researchers at a university in Michigan, which have been doing a project to uh, kind of catalog the SSL features of all the web servers, yeah, uh, they found that 36.7% uh, of websites that have a certificate that would normally be trusted by a browser yeah. still support export crypto. Oh, good, good. <laughs> yeah. So basically, this attack allows. This is kind of similar to Poodle in that it allows the attacker to force you to downgrade to a weak encryption that then they have a chance to crack. Uh, so that's how it works. Yeah. So many of the sites that were uh, still have the export crypto enabled uh, were government websites. I think uh, the front page of the FBI, the NSA, and a bunch of other websites. Oh, wow. Surprise. You know, where. That one would be a great one if you could uh, intercept people's traffic and inject a Trojan or something into the website. Or just change the message on the website to be something, you know, that could scare people. Uh, but one of the other things that was uh, causing that number to be very high is some of the CDNs like Akamai still had export crypto enabled. Mm. Probably because, you know, it's kind of their business to make sure that when someone tries to go to your website, they don't get an error message. And so no matter how old their browser is or whatever, you still want them to be able to connect. And so they still support this old stuff. And uh, they're quickly remediating that now uh, since the export crypto shouldn't really be required by anybody's anything anymore uh, yeah. in the last 15 years, really almost the last 20 years. There's probably a lot of things like that we have cleanup to do on. Yeah. Uh, well, the um, TLS 1.1 uh, removes support for the 40-bit keys. And I think uh, 1.2 is going to remove uh, or did remove the 56-bit keys. Hmm. But most people are still using TLS 1.0, which still allows that old export crypto. Probably an oversight when we came up with that a while ago. But hopefully we can get everybody transitioned to newer stuff uh, after this series of craziness. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, Ivan Ristic from uh, Qualls, which is the company that runs SSL Labs, that you know that website you go to and it tells you how good your uh, crypto is set up on your web server or uh -huh. your browser. Yeah. They said, in practice, I don't think this is a terribly big issue, uh, but only because you have to have many ducks in a row to do it. You have to find a vulnerable server that offers export crypto. Then uh, it, that server has to reuse its key for a really long time. Mm. Uh, otherwise, you crack the key and then it changes and you're like, oh, shit, right? Um, then you have to break the key, which is you know, uh, $100 retail. Um, then you have to find vulnerable clients and then you have to be in a man-in-the-middle position uh, which isn't that hard to do if you're on a local network or Wi-Fi at the coffee shop or whatever, but it's not, you know, easy to do to a specific person. You have to have some territory advantage usually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you can't just easily do this to everyone. Yeah. Although, you know, you can sit in a coffee shop and intercept lots of traffic. Yeah. Uh, so it's not that easy. But uh, what I recommend people do is uh, Mozilla published a nice guide uh, where they have all the ciphers and the order you should put them in. Uh, and they also have the explanation of why they have it in that order. And they offer a couple different versions. It's like if you really need compatibility with Windows XP and older, like mm -hmm. stock Windows XP mm -hmm. where they're still going to be using IE6 or whatever. You're stuck in that use position. this one. <laughs> but 
normally you should probably use this one and it has the uh, the explanation and the criteria and all that broken down. Very cool. You know, I've seen a couple of the other ones like this where they just tell you what to do, but they don't explain why. And then you're always like, well, why is it in that order? And, and the Mozilla one actually explains why. But the biggest thing is if you look at your uh, SSL Cypher Suite uh, declaration line, whether it's Apache or Nginx or whatever, uh, make sure it has the exclamation mark export, which means not export. So any of the Cypher Suites that are labeled as export encryption will be disabled that okay. way. And you want to make sure you turn off DES and MD5 and anything that has, that's in the low group and lots of other ones like that. But uh, making sure you don't have those uh, would be a good thing. Yeah. Uh, ideally, you would just grab the the list there from Mozilla and change it to do that in that order, uh, and that will definitely improve your score over at SSL Labs. Hmm. Uh, and then the cryptographyengineering.com has uh, a bit more kind of analysis of this stuff, uh, and they kind of break down the, how the uh, man in the middle attack has to work, or oh, how it actually works. Like so, uh, in the client's hello message, it. Uh, ask for a standard RSA cipher suite. The man in the middle attacker changes this message to ask for export RSA, which is saying, I want a 512-bit certificate. Uh, the other interesting thing here is we've actually changed now. The requirement for new certificates is it has to be at least 2048-bit. So dropping down to 512 is a big drop, and you know the client shouldn't allow that. Uh, so then the server responds with this 512-bit uh, export RSA key signed with its long-term key. The client accepts this sweet key due to the OpenSSL or secure transport bug. So OpenSSL is the open source one that's used on, you know, uh, basically every uh, <laughs> Linux anything yeah. uh, on Android, etc. A lot of appliances. Um, secure too. transport is Apple's version of that, which also has the same bug in it. Hmm. Uh, and then I think uh, Mozilla uses their own thing called NSS, but uh, so I think that's why uh, Firefox isn't affected by this. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. And uh, uh, Anyway, then uh, once the client accepts that, the attacker then factors the RSA uh, modulus of the key to recover the RSA decryption key. Uh, when the client encrypts the pre-master secret to the server as part of the uh, connection setup, the attacker can now decrypt it and recover the uh, TLS master key, which allows them to decrypt the entire session. So the attacker gets to see the original plain text of the messages going back and forth and can inject uh, messages from either side. So they can uh, do things, they can add stuff to the request pretending to be the client and the server will accept it and they can add stuff from the server's answer and the client will accept it. Because, mm. you know, the entire point of SSL in addition to the encryption is also the um, authenticity Right? Yeah. making sure that the message was not modified on the way by a man in the middle. But if the man in the middle has the keys, then they can do that. Interesting. Uh, next week, we'll have a story that uh, kind of goes into a little bit about that and how somebody was able to exploit Uber, in mm -hmm. a sense, because uh, of a tool they used. They talk about a tool that uh, grabs the traffic. Well, in particular, I think it was the code in the Uber app wasn't verifying the identity of the certificate. Don't spoil it, Alan. That's coming up next but, week. Uh, uh, so this is a bug that was in both uh, OpenSSL and Apple's Secure Transport, and that's why it affects uh, Chrome or uh, the Android browser and uh, iOS and Apple and Safari and so on. Hmm. But yeah, the biggest uh, kind of surprise here is that we changed the requirement. I think 20th 
2013 or 2014 so that no new SSL certificates can be issued that are less than 2048-bit, but the clients were still accepting 512-bit keys. Yeah, yeah. It is the, uh, it is the uh, ghost of it's crypto kind of past. The, uh, the problem of the internet is that we, it's hard to get rid of old crap. Yep. Yeah, well, and and it's 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 in every single it's in code, it's in it's in standards we use, it's in yep, firmwares on our devices. Appliances and firmwares yep. are probably the reason, right? Yeah. There's some device with a microscopically slow CPU yep. uh, that could only do five twelve bit or something like that. And sometimes once this stuff gets into production, it never gets out. That's why you gotta make a good choice at the beginning. You have to make the right choices. This is why the transition to IPv six is taking so long, because Everything has to still work for IPv4. Totally. Somebody's still going to have a... It's also the reason why we can't solve the spam problem. Totally. Because we just have to fundamentally change email. And how would we convince everybody on the internet to upgrade to one new standard? <laughs> Not anymore. You'd have, somebody would want to own it, like Google would want to have the Gmail API and something. Yeah, you know, so just, Microsoft would have to have their own separate oh, yeah, one. Yeah. They wouldn't be compatible. Of course, and, you'd have the Apple one that only works on Apple devices. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. All right, Alan, your thoughts on that story? No, I don't think so. I uh, know there's some extra links here. Yeah. Um, uh, in particular, the researchers that are doing this uh, have their site Smack TLS, yeah. uh, where they're basically doing fuzzing and testing and stuff to cool. uh, find more and more of these vulnerabilities in SSL. Smack so, TLS, huh? Cool. Yeah. yeah, so they're just going there and, and basically fuzzing and, and doing stuff to purposely uh, try to eke out as many of these as quickly as they can so that uh, we'll be able to... That's cool. Yeah, so basically they're attacking the state machine inside uh, yeah. the TLS protocol to find problems in it. And it's interesting, so they're not necessarily targeting um, open SSL specifically. They're checking all SSL implementations. All right, Alan. Well, it looks like one here, one of the other ones they found affects, sorry, affects Java. Oh. And it's SSL. All right, well, our, our next story uh, I find particularly revealing about a much wider problem uh, in the U.S. But first, I was speaking about making the right choices when you deploy technology, I want to tell you about DigitalOcean. Head over to DigitalOcean right now. And remember this, we've got a promo code, SNAPOcean. If one word, lowercase, is going to get you a $10 credit over DigitalOcean. And here's why you might want to do that. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider that's dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up a cloud server. That translates to saving you time. That's the number one thing for me. It also means means it's not confusing at all. So regardless of what your expertise level is, you're going to be able to manage DigitalOcean if you're a listener of this show. And you yep. can get started in less than 55 seconds, and pricing plans start at only $5 a month. For 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. And DigitalOcean is data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, and London. They're gorgeous. they got pictures of them online. And I, I have to tell you, I think I've got three active droplets. Sometimes I have four. I, I have one uh, um, for Scale Engine. We wanted to, we're starting to build a uh, status website. Uh, we're scheduling some, uh, some maintenance stuff coming up, and we needed a, a good way to communicate that with our customers. And so I looked at a couple of different status dashboard softwares. I tried a couple written in Python and got frustrated and had to write my own. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it looked like... Um, Discuss had a nice one that they had been uh, open sourcing, but then it seems that the person that was working on it there kind of left and started as a service, and Discuss just switched to using the, the service. But I didn't feel like paying $99 a month for a status page, so I pay $5 a month over at DO to run an instance where I can yep. run FreeBSD, Nginx, yeah. and, and, and 
I've got Python th- or whatever the, the and value, make it work. I get three of them, and I can't believe how much I can do on three DigitalOcean droplets. It blows my mind. They're all the $5 rig, too. And uh, I get emails from folks that are using it for, like, the coolest stuff. The one that I've been hearing a lot more is from dads who are setting up a DigitalOcean droplet to host Minecraft for, like, three or mm-hmm. four kids to play on or, like, just a small group of kids to play on. So it's nice and safe, and they can, but it's public, and it's on a good, powerful system. And it, there's, there's tutorials, so you, even if you're not an expert, you can get set up. Exactly. Right. You don't have to be a Linux expert yeah. to set this up for your kids. No, and in most cases, the DigitalOcean pricing is cheaper than any of the dedicated Minecraft yeah. hosting. And then you can also use it, like, you could have a mobile server on there, so they have it, or, or a team speaker or whatever, so they have a nice mm-hmm. private, safe uh, spot to chat for $5 a month. Uh, and it really is not going to be hard to get started because they're di- they're di- the DigitalOcean droplet is just, uh, it's incredible. It is it's super intuitive, but very powerful. Uh, and in fact, it's so powerful that you can replicate the functionality without even having to use the dashboard because they have an API that lets you get to all this kind of stuff. I'm talking like the snapshots, the DNS management, the backing up your system, uh, the deploying applications via the one-click installations like GitLab, Docker, Ruby on Rails, WordPress, Ghost, lots of stuff. Plus, uh, they all back it up with those great tutorials. So go over to DigitalOcean, use the promo code SNAPOcean, and get started with your own cloud server. You'll see how awesome it is just when you do updates. They've got free BSD now, lots of Linux yes. rigs, some good choices. Just just doing package management is a thrill, seriously. And then all the cool stuff you get to build. DigitalOcean.com, SNAPOcean when you check out. And a big thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. <laughs> okay, Alan, so uh, this isn't really politics anymore. When it comes to this kind of story, this is more about data security, maybe uh, trying to skirt the law, but uh, Hillary Clinton, well, right? Yeah, right. Hillary Clinton this week is in the news a lot because it turns out that during her time as head of the State Department, she used something like, what was it, HDR22 at ClintonEmail.com or something like that. She used her own private email server hosted in her own house. Was it actually at her house? Yeah. It's actually at her at her residence, oh. in, one of her residences in New York. Yeah. Ah. Uh, interesting. Um, so part of the reason I decided to cover this is just because this is something that happens everywhere, right? It's not just Hillary Clinton that was no. doing this. You see people doing this when they work at a company and, mm-hmm. and lots and, of other places. And actually, Colin Powell did it, and there's some indications that John Kerry does it to a small degree. He has an official, his statement was, I have an official uh, email account that I use for most my activity or something like that. So right. I, I think a lot well, of people do this. In, in particular, uh, when Colin Powell was doing it, it wasn't a law that you weren't supposed mm-hmm. to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the reason why, obviously, the government uh, does this because they they want to be able to keep the history. It's a, reta- it's a federal retentions thing, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's well, it, partly it's for history and, and, and so on, but also because they need a record of everything that happened because, you know, these are official communications. They used to happen as letters in the mail, right? And, uh, or, you know, something equivalent. You know, they were usually couriered rather than just sent through the post office. But, you know, it was an actual letter they got, so they would look at it, and then the government would keep the original, Right. And so it was, you know, they had this paper record. And with email, that kind of changed, uh, and they needed a system. And so uh, a couple of years ago, they came up with this rule that, you know, they all it has to go through the official email account because everything that goes through there gets saved, right, so that we have a copy of everything. But sometimes people are using their private email addresses. Some people now, don't follow the rules. Yeah. Well, and, and the way, interesting thing is that oftentimes... Uh, I don't think people really think about this, but I remember it was uh, one of the things they tried to explain to my class in college when we were doing uh, our, we had a little course on, you know, resume writing or whatever. It's like, make sure you have a professional looking email address when you put it on your resume, 
right? You don't want to be, I like big butts at hotmail.com <laughs> yeah. when you're applying for a job. Yeah. Uh, and that was before. Now the college actually provides a first name dot last name at mohawkcollege.ca email address. Uh, but the problem with those is that they tend, um, they used to keep working forever, but now they started, you know, kicking people off because they switched from, I think they use Planet Web or some decent mail server before, but now they use Exchange. And so they have to kick people off once they're not students there anymore. <laughs> Oh, uh, that's kind of sad. Yeah. But anyway, uh, so a couple of quotes from the article here. Uh, Hillary Clinton exclusively used a personal email account to conduct government business as Secretary of State uh, and may have violated federal requirements that officials' correspondence be retained as part of the agency's record. Right. Uh, so in particular, they're, uh, they just want to have copies of everything. Uh, Ms. Clinton did not have a government email address during her four-year tenure at the State Department. So it seems like they just, you know, she never asked for one, so they never even set her up one. It's not like she had one she just didn't use. They no, just and never it, had and one And in at fact, all. Uh, she, I actually, I see, this is, tell me what you think about this, okay? So, mm-hmm. uh, hold on, let me pull up a picture here for you to, to help demonstrate. So we talked about this a little bit. Uh, last night on Unfilter, we di- at a different track, uh, and so I got for the artwork. I got this picture here. Here's Hillary. She was famous for traveling around, uh, checking her email on her BlackBerry. Lots of pictures of her reading her State Department email on her BlackBerry. So somebody had to configure her BlackBerry, her State Department secured BlackBerry, to connect to her home email server. That somebody was probably an IT guy. So the IT department must have known that she was using her own personal email and wasn't using a State Department email account because they were configuring her BlackBerry. Right. Uh, well. It's possible as you can figure your own back, right? But <laughs> it's hard to say. Uh, it says, her aide took no actions to have her personal emails preserved on department servers at the time as required by the Federal Records Act. Uh, so apparently it's uh, not uncommon for, you know, the person in the big role as the Secretary of State or whatever to not know or care about the rules and their aide just make sure that the email gets copied out uh, to the to the uh, State Department's email server so they have a copy, but that hmm. didn't happen. And so on. Um, this is a, uh, it was only two months ago in response to a new State Department effort to comply with the federal record-keeping practice that Mrs. Clinton's advisors reviewed uh, tens of thousands of pages of her personal emails and decided which ones to turn over to the State Department. Uh, in total, there were 55,000 pages of emails that were given to the department. Uh, so... That raises two interesting things. Is obviously she was using this email for some stuff that wasn't for the State Department, mm-hmm. right? It'd be one thing if, if especially if they had this, you know, ClintonEmail.com or whatever special server set up. If she had one inbox for official stuff and another inbox for not. Actually, there is some word that she might have had multiple email accounts. Well, I'm, I'm sure she did, but it seems like they decided it wasn't just everything that was sent into her email address that was for the State Department or whatever. Yeah, yeah, they went yeah. through and handled. I'm sure it. she had one for family or whatever yeah. and, and one for work, but the work one contained some stuff they decided not to give over. You know, just to, on the same train here, though, uh, what makes, uh, if we if we extend this out, what makes text messages that much different or an instant message, a Skype log message history or something like that? Uh, should those that, all that, also be under state accounts and, and logs? If... if the State Department shouldn't be conducting official business over Skype, probably. No, I but agree, but like, what if there was... Yes, they, uh, they probably have something. Yeah, I mean, if there is some communication over text or something like that, you which know, must... And I think that that's, there's a reason why uh, things designed for corporate use like that, like WebEx, have a feature to record yeah. the meeting so yeah. that that could be preserved. Yeah. But 
That's not to say the, that it is being and, done properly. Yeah. See, the problem is, is this all is, these systems kind of usually... This, um, it's, it's kind of the, the problem with the whole bring your own device thing with the corporate network is that when people bring their own devices or use their own, uh, like decide, oh, I'm just going to use Dropbox to share these files with these people or whatever, mm-hmm. like we talked about, mm-hmm. is that's outside of the IT rules. And so it doesn't, these policies, it's harder to apply these policies when everybody's just doing things willy-nilly. But the flip side of it is like, if you're interfacing with a lot of different uh, governments and people that, you know, all have different rules, like sometimes like you, like you can't have like a secure chat program unless everybody's using the same program. Well, that's why things like email, that's why everybody just defaults down to things like text and email because that's universal. Mm -hmm. And it could be something small, like, uh, you know, I can't send a large attachment to that email account. So send it to this account and things like that start happening even. And this yep. is really gets squirrely really fast. And I, it's yeah. clear too, like politicians have a reason to do this because they, you know, if the email server's in your house, then they're going to have to come knock on your door to get the information. And there's just protection in that degree too. There's, so there's incentive as a politician to have it like this as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then uh, here they have uh, a quote from uh, Jason Barron, who was, used to be the director of litigation for the National Archives and Records Administration. Yeah. It is very difficult to conceive of a scenario short of nuclear winter where an agency would be justified in allowing its cabinet-level officers uh, solely to use uh, private email communication channels to conduct government business. Yeah. And also here, uh, under federal law, letters and emails written or received by federal officers, such as the Secretary of State, are considered government records and are supposed to be retained so that the congressional committees, historians, and members of the news media can find them. Uh, there are exceptions to the law for certain cases like classified or sensitive material. But it also raised the question, how many emails were in Ms. Clinton's account? It's not clear. And uh, what process they used to decide which things should be handed over to the State Department and which shouldn't is also, you know, we don't have any idea. Talk about a waste of people's time now, too, to go through all this crap. But yeah, uh, when I was reading, it wasn't clear uh, where this email was hosted, whether it was like something like Gmail or Outlook, and obviously there's huge security implications at just hosting on a big platform like that. Uh, but uh, you're saying she has it was a, a, a private yeah, super. She uh, has a, a private little. Well, the Clintons do at yeah. their at one of their New York residents, and here's the best part: it's guarded by the Secret Service. So, like they like right. they have pretty so, good so, security. <laughs> right. So so nobody can break in and steal the hard drive. Yeah. Yeah. But you know. Who's in charge of configuring that mail server? Uh, a and long what's time. What's their security clearance? The guy's name is Eric something. Uh, I talked about it last night in the show uh, on Unfilter. He he's like he's been with the Clintons since the '90s, and he's their chief technology guy. And uh, he right. set it up but the, what's the IP- security clearance. <laughs> cool, good question. The IP address is actually registered to him as well, too. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, it's like ClintonEmail.com or something. Right. It's in this. It's it's actually in this New York Times article. Okay, it's uh, a longer. Yeah, it's super crazy long. Uh, and then the and then the location of it, I think, came out after this article. But her actual email address is in there. Um, yeah. But yeah, uh, you know, there are fairly large concerns there with you know, what if that guy decided that uh, you know, the French government was willing to pay him a bunch of money to see what was in Clinton's email? I suppose that could always happen. Uh, they seem to trust. But the also, guy. you know, yes, and maybe he's trustworthy, but. Uh, as the administrator of this email server, he had probably had access to read all of the emails. And does he have a security clearance that allows him to be able to read all those emails, right? He probably doesn't, right? He's a private employee of the Clintons, not uh, of the government. I, uh, here's, a, here's a little bit of, uh, uh, this is uh, 
just a, a clip from CBS. You're talking about her at her home. Press traced her emails to an internet service based at the Clintons' home in Chappaqua, New York. Computer experts say a private server would give Clinton a great deal of control over her messages. Margaret Brennan is at the. So there you go. Yes, you know, I host my own email because that control is very useful. Yeah, uh, but I'm not getting government emails that are sensitive, and you know, my, my concern there is that the how many people had root access to this email server, mm-hmm. and you know, how, what was keeping them from reading messages they shouldn't have. My major con- more my concern is more uh, how much does this block the public's access to information? If mm-hmm. even if there's a freedom of information request, and then the government determines, okay, well, we have to go to the Clintons' personal server to get that. It start it talks about in this article to do that. They have to go to the Clintons' lawyers, which immediately means then the Clintons' lawyers have an opportunity to to put it on hold and block it and argue it in court to delay mm-hmm. it. And then of course if if the FBI wanted to physically show up and take it or somebody wanted to physically show up and take the information, whoever that would be, you'd have to wonder if they'd have to contend with the Secret Service. So there's, yep. it's, there, there, is an, uh, there is an obvious attempt here to hide information from the public, and I would bet that she's just the tip of the iceberg, and that happens a lot. I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily uh, they did it on purpose to hide information. It might just be, you know, I would prefer to use my, an email server I controlled as well. But Sure, I suppose so, especially if I was a yes, politician for, under a lot of attacks. Yeah, but I definitely think that the um, the government business should be conducted on the government's account so that they have that record. Yeah, uh, for exactly the reasons you specify. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder uh, we'll see what happens. And and so kind of the reason I brought up the story is because you know the same thing happens at private companies, right? It's not uh, something that only happens in government, and right. it kind of has implications that you will see. Uh, elsewhere. So if you're working in IT at a big company, you're likely to see people uh, sometimes using their private account to, whether it's just emailing themselves files, which are you know going around your policy about making sure data isn't getting exfiltrated from your company, um, to other stuff, right? So um, you know, if, if I work at this company and I start using my private email and having you know, our customers of, our, of the company email me at that private email address or something, uh, how does the company comply with rules that require them to keep certain emails for like seven years for legal reasons? Mm-hmm. Because they don't have my, they're not administrators over my email account, whereas on the, uh, if it's their email server, even if I delete the email, you know, they have backups and snapshots or whatever, or it doesn't actually get deleted when I delete it, it just gets hidden from my inbox. Yep. Uh, you know, they have the backups, it's their responsibility. You know, if it is my email account, maybe I'll try to keep it thing, but I'm not an expert and I don't have a backup and it goes away. And now they're the email they're legally required to have, they don't have. Uh, or, you know, uh, say you're an employee and you leave the company. If you leave the company, they can take away your access to your old email account and you don't have access to all the old emails you got anymore. And more importantly, if new emails get sent there, they can be forwarded to your replacement rather than going to you. Whereas if you used a personal address that the company doesn't control, you get old customers contacting you and you're like, oh, I'm actually at this company over here now. You should come over and move your account to my mm-hmm. new company. Yes, that, as I've seen, I have watched that several times. Yeah, I've actually uh, done a, an investigation on something like that at one time. Uh, there was an employee of an engineering firm and he had a company-issued laptop and then one day he just up and left and moved to the States and worked for a competitor. Oh. Uh, and uh, when they finally got their laptop back, they gave it to me and we did a forensic investigation on it. Yeah. And uh, we found that in his Hotmail account, uh, which back then he was using Internet Explorer, it was years ago, uh, and the way the spell checker worked 
because it was ActiveX, was it would save a copy of the email to your internet temporary files folder, then run the ActiveX uh, spell checker on it, and then put the results into the browser. So that means there were cached copies of the drafts of his emails on the hard drive. And we managed to uh, undelete those. Oh, get very nice. And, and go through it and be able to show that he was, while working at the company here in Canada, uh, talking with the company in the U.S., describing what documents he was going to steal from the company he was working for in Canada and bring to them and, you know, setting up uh, to live in Texas and, and getting his, you know, buying a house and getting the utilities all hooked up and, and the whole conspiracy <laughs> was all there in a series of emails. Wow. That but was a big boo-boo. He didn't do this on his company email account where it would just be sitting on their server. Right, right? of course. Uh, he just didn't do a very good job of cleaning up the company laptop he was using <laughs> when he gave it back. He, yeah, got a little sloppy. Yeah. Well, he didn't know what he was doing, right? Yeah. <laughs> he was uh, like a mechanical engineer. They made, I think the company made vacuum things or something, like <laughs> industrial vacuums or something. It was not computer related. Uh, anyway, so yeah, uh, there's, you have the problem of, you know, you can't revoke access to the archives. You can't make sure the emails go to the right person after the fact. And there's a bunch of problems, and this is why you should definitely have uh, corporate emails. But also, as we were mentioning about the uh, the resume thing, mm-hmm. corporate emails is kind of a way to look professional, right? Yes, uh, if yes. You're, if your employees are emailing with a at gmail.com address, yeah. you're like, meh. Honestly, or, if the worst I, one is when a company's email address is company name at gmail.com. You're like, yeah, well, yeah. was that a one-person company? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, honestly, if I had met Hillary Clinton in person and she had told me, like, yeah, email me, here's my email address, I would have been like, are you essing me? Hillary Clinton's, well, like... It, ha- for, for a personal email, that would make sense. Yes, if you, if, for if a personal was, email only, yes, yes that would yes. make sense. For personal email. Or, well, even if it was for, you know, election stuff or something, as yeah. if you were emailing Hillary Clinton, yeah. then that makes perfect sense. Yeah. But if you're emailing the U.S. Secretary of State, then that should be, you know... I agree. Like that, honestly, that should be a role email address, right? It right, because you'd have to have Hillary dot Clinton right. at state right. gov or something. Right, it should literally be the title of the role, and then that email account automatically transitions over yeah. to the successor when that happens. That seems like you'd have to do it that way. Yeah, <laughs> really, because the, the the government of some country that I guess just wasn't aware that Hillary Clinton was replaced with John Kerry or whatever, yeah. and just randomly emailing Hillary Clinton, and she's supposed to email back, be like, oh, you should talk to my replacement now? Right. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, oh, hey there, sorry, yeah, I'm no longer working there anymore. You need to email. Like, Well, right, like, obviously, the way it would actually work is you would have individualized email addresses so that, you know, if sure. somebody's sending a memo, you send it specifically, yes. But then, yes, there should be a role-based alias that goes to the right person, and that's the one that people should be emailing. Yeah. Like, you know, their their clients should all be set with a, a, a reply to so that, you know, every email they send gets sent back to the right address and so on. Yeah. But the problem is that your your random politicians probably are not as proficient at email as, as other people. No, but their aides and staff should be proficient at that stuff. That's where that role, that's their roles, right? Yep. All right, Alan. Any other thoughts on that story? Um, no. Uh, I was just saying that, you know, 
while yes, this is a big story about the government and, and uh, public access to information and, and all that, you could change the names. Every- and yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's the same story if you just change the names. Yeah, if and you change his name to be the CEO of some company was doing this, you would have exactly the same thing. And even though you know it makes sense that people would try to do this, I never really thought about it. So it kind of brought this into uh, our minds as well. Hey, Alan, why don't I uh, tell you about something else you should be on your mind? That's Ting. Go to techsnap.ting.com to get the TechSnap discount and support the show. And while you're there, uh, check out a few features. You're going to be pretty impressed by Ting because they do things a little differently. It's mobile that makes sense. They have no early termination fees and no contracts. You only pay for what you actually use. So when you go to Ting, you don't have to buy like a like this uh, one type of plan or this other type of plan or this really big plan just in case you might need it. That's that's all artificial. It's fake. Ting just eliminates all of that. It's just a flat $6 for your line. And then it's just your usage on top of that. Your minutes, your messages, your megabytes. Ting adds it all up and that's what you pay. It's really easy to manage. I've got three lines, $6 each, an HTC One, an Nexus 5, and an iPhone 5. And it's like I think 37 to $40, somewhere in that range. Because uh, we're pretty good with Wi-Fi. Uh, and you'll save a lot of money if you check out Ting. In fact, one way you can find out is Ting has a savings calculator. When you go to techsnap.ting.com, you'll, say the t- you'll see this Ting savings calculator. Go ahead and put your current usage in there. So uh, minutes used, let's see, you know, I use about 200 minutes a month. Uh, I actually do almost all of my texting over Telegram now. Uh, so I probably get about five text messages, maybe, maybe at most. Uh, I do kind of weigh in on data quite a bit. Uh, uh, so, um, you know, I, I range a lot depending on the month. Sometimes it's as much as a gig, uh, but usually it's, it's somewhere in about the 500 range, uh, because, uh, I use a lot of Wi-Fi. Now uh, I have two devices, so I'm going to have to also put in, uh, Angela's. Now Angela uses a little bit more minutes. Uh, she uses probably about 500 minutes and she uses about uh, 35 text messages, but she pretty much uses Telegram as well. And, uh, she uses about 400 megabytes of, of RAM or RAM. Of, uh, of data transfer. And so uh, our bill was quite a bit of money. Uh, and, you know, I, I just, so I don't know. I, I, Alan, I, I was talking to producer Rotten Corpse. His bill right now is $100, is $200 a month uh, uh, for around this kind of usage. So I'm going to say, I'll we'll wow. just split it across evenly and say $100 for each. Now that could depend a lot. That could vary a lot. Like some people, it might be $50 a line. Uh, maybe it's like $80 a line. You know, you I could just tweak mine, that. mine uh, is $75 for 200 minutes, unlimited messages, and uh, a gigabyte of of. Uh, and then just overages if, if you go over. Yeah, yeah. although I never go yeah. anywhere near any of those. Yeah, numbers. as long as you're on Wi-Fi, and that's what's great. So Ting doesn't, of course, Ting doesn't have any overages because it's just whatever yeah. you use. And I'm like Wi-Fi all the time, so I'm the same. Mm-hmm. I'm in the same spot. So like going back to the savings calculator, I'll just kind of we'll just kind of run this. Would be this would be pretty like Alan and I kind of usage here because you're at home a lot, <laughs> you know. Yep. But even there, look at that. Over two years, you're going to save sixteen hundred dollars, almost seventeen hundred dollars by switching to Ting. You go to yep. techsnap.ting.com. They've got a lot of really great devices over there right now, and adding even more as they roll out the GSM service. I pulled out a couple. Of you might want to check out brand new on the ting network the unimax mxe 675 when you go to techsnap.ting.com it's 81 dollars 81 dollars for a dual 1.2 gigahertz android 4.2 uh smartphone for 81 bucks i mean you can get in with with jelly bean for 80 bucks and no contract no early termination fee and then you just pay for what you use it's unlocked it's yours you own this uh it's got uh, it also has a camera um it's got 32 gigabytes of storage so, you know, it's not actually that bad. A 5-megapixel camera for 80 bucks. 
check it out. Uh, also, of course, my beloved Nexus 5, $349, and you own it. No contract. Go to techsnap.ting.com. Check them out to start saving right now, and then you can apply that money to something real fun later on. Like, even if I took the numbers from my plan, which, you know, it's like you get this much of these, and, and you always have to use less or pay extra. Mm-hmm. Even if I used, like... Every all one gigabytes of my data and all of my minutes and so on, uh, switching to Ting would still save me just less than a thousand dollars over two years. Yeah, that's nice. That's nice. Yeah. <laughs> that could be that could be a, an SSD upgrade. That could be you know. I mean, there's a lot of things you could do with you that. Yeah, a couple SSDs for a thousand bucks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so uh, for the love of all that is holy, can we finally just accept the file extension, Alan? Right? Yeah. Am I right? I don't know why this was ever a thing. I think maybe Apple. Can we just uh, blame Apple? Windows started it, I'm sure. But what the uh, hiding the extension? But yeah. didn't they do that to copy Apple? Because Apple didn't. Did see, in the no early idea. days of Mac OS, uh, all of the all of the document information was stuffed in metadata in the file system. So you wrote right. to this just, extra field. Files just didn't even have extensions. Right? No, no, none at all. And so you just so you download a file and it, the, like the author of the application could stuff it in that field automatically, or uh, the first time you ran an application, it would add it to that, and that would even that would even persist when you moved it across Macs. So they were like, "Hey, you don't need file extensions, but the file system okay. takes care of it." But of course, that yeah. was only well, for in them. Unix. In, the, in Unix, you know, file extensions didn't really have a meaning. Right, right? files dots were just another yeah. character. You, make, that you might mark a file, file executable, or it's not executable, and you, and right, and and. It was kind of up, you to, up to you to track what a file was, but also there's this thing called libmagic and, uh, and the file command, and it can basically look at the first little bit of a file and be like, oh, this is obviously a JPEG, or this yeah. is obviously uh, an executable sure. or whatever. Uh, yeah, but so in Windows, originally, like Windows 90, uh, DOS and, and then uh, Windows 3.1 and so on, the fat file system had a restriction. You could only the file name could only be eight letters, mm-hmm. and then you'd have a period, and then you could have three letters for the file extension. And that was it. And then that file extension eventually became related to, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, file associations, where yeah. when you double click a file, it would open it that app. Yeah, but Windows would keep DOS, track They of didn't that. have that, right? right? The file extension was just informational. Yeah. And it was sometimes it was just like, well, why didn't we just say file names could be, uh. 12 characters. Yeah, I know. I've, I've always wondered that too, but yeah. Uh, you know, I could give a much more meaningful name to the file with 12 characters than have to have yeah. an extension. Yeah. Uh, but I guess a couple of files, they had something kind of like file association, I guess, because, you know, dot .bat files could be executable, right? And you had dot .exe and dot .com, which was uh, different. Yeah, than I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, because you can only run it, yeah. Yeah, so I guess there was, but it was more like it was more. It wasn't so much like an index that things could add uh, and subtract. Right. It was, but it was like, there was only like four file extensions it was like, that were yeah, expected. it was built into the core of the OS. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, over at thestack.com, they have a, a discussion of common user interface problems, and you know they talk about other pet peeves of mine, like web browsers, especially Chrome, uh, turning your browser into like a dumb TV appliance. Right, hiding the protocol prefix or hiding yeah. the URL bar completely, and yeah. also the tabletification of the web. Oh, yeah. Websites change in V. Everything's just like two big pictures on the website, and that's it. Yeah, you know, responsive design is an interesting idea, but the whole point of responsive design is to be like, here's what our website normally looks like. Then, if the screen is too small, take out these bits and only show this more right. important information. Right. Whereas some websites said, well, 
that's a lot of work to basically have two versions of the website. Even though the idea with the responsive design is you render it with just tags and then just delete the parts you don't need. Um, they're like, oh, well, let's just make one really dumb version of the website that'll work on every device. Yeah. It's like, I have this giant screen. Why is the website only taking this much of the page? Huge fonts, huge pictures. Yep. Everything's yeah. stuffed it's under like, hamburger menus. Exactly. And it's like, ah. And also the scroll bar. Apple's uh, inverted yep. the way the scroll bar works because if you're on an Apple, it's most likely a laptop and uh, like a MacBook. And if you're using a touchpad, scrolling by sliding up like you would on a touchscreen apparently makes more sense. They call it natural scrolling. I can't stand yeah. I can't stand it. Exactly. It's like I've been scrolling down yeah. since yeah. since the 80s. Yeah, Come since on. mice were a thing. Yeah. Um and you know, even on my touchpad I'm used to scroll down to go down. Like I'm not sure why phones decided to make you flick up instead of down honestly. But anyway, so on top of that, they also talked about the file extensions and the problems it caused. I remember uh, the first time I saw this, you know, 15 years ago, uh, when you could name a file, you know, something.jpg.exe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? When we just added long file name support where you could finally have more than eight letters yeah, in file yeah. name. Uh, so then we ended up with, you know, the Anna Kornikova virus, right? Mailing around this picture or this file that looks like a picture, right? So you call it, you know, anacornikova.jpg.exe. And you make the exe's icon be the, the Windows icon for a JPEG. And now everybody gets this email and like, oh, it's a picture, not a program. So it's safe to open. Yeah, Double click, yeah. boom, infected, yeah, right? Yeah. That was 15 years ago. And they haven't changed the default in Windows to make it not do that. Um, and it's just, you know, they say Windows users still need to manually activate extension visibility, uh, even though email transmitted viruses depend on less savvy users who are never going to do this. Right, and uh, the other big thing is that now that we're in the age of interoperability with other file systems and the mm-hmm. internet, and even just some of the other stuff we have, you know, we have FLAC files. That's a four-letter extension, right? <laughs> and and so on. And dun dun dun. <laughs> yeah, Windows just breaks down. Like also, Windows doesn't like you to create files that start with a dot. Still, yeah, <laughs> it's very annoyed at you. Yeah, you can do it, but it gets very annoyed at you. Mm-hmm. And it's like. Yes, it's perfectly fine for me to have a file called .htaccess. Yeah, I know. Right? Yeah. Make a f- it's, you can't actually make a file association for that in Windows, I don't think. It still doesn't work properly. Uh, but it doesn't. I don't know why they can't just enable file extensions and leave it be. You know? Well, I think it'll happen. When? If th- it's not Windows 10, it's basically never going to happen. Well, um, I think it's going to happen, but I think it'll happen more like uh, abstracted from the user. Like the, the operating system will keep track of it like in a database somehow, I think. It'll be there, but it just the user's not going to see it as much. What? Well, like, so think about the like... The point of this is just the file. It's there in the file system. All I, we have to do well, is stop truncating it in the file name. I would, I would wager you that in five to ten years, Macs will ship without even r- real access to the file system. And, and here's the other thing. Once you're in like the modern UI of Windows 10 or Windows 8 and you're accessing files between... You're, oh, you're, you're pulling files from own dr- uh, OneDrive, you're, not, you're also not looking at file extensions. They are trying to move away from file extensions, Alan, like a bunch of insane maniacs. But really, instead of file associations, what we probably should have is something like libmagic, although it's had a couple of security problems before. Uh, and then, you know, that gives you the MIME type. And then instead of a file type association, 
you have a mime type association. Oh, yeah. this is a JPEG. Yeah. I open my JPEGs in Picture Viewer. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's why I just and name everything just weird that Windows hasn't had that, right? Yeah, well, yes. one of one of my biggest hacks on my Windows machine is a registry entry that adds open with Notepad to the right click menu yeah. of every file type. Yes, and, like, well, not every file, but just every file. Yeah. Period. Yeah, because you might want to open any file in Notepad. Yes. Yeah, Although seems the ideal with so much Unix, I also have one that opens it in a text editor that actually understands yeah. uh, slash n new lines, right? Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, it's a mess. But yeah. Anyway. Uh, huh. That's all. I just wanted. Good to soapbox, Alan. Ah, I'm, right yeah, I'm right there with you. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Max and Windows for not doing that. Arr, you know, I'll tell you about somebody who gets it. That's IX Systems. Go to ixsystems.com/slash/techsnap to check out more, support the show, and look at some of those amazing rigs powered by them Intel Xeon processors, and actually other Intel yes, processors have, as well. If hit under the um, oh the what the Ultra Core, the Ultra Core, Ultra Core. The ult- I already have it pulled up, Alan. I already have it. So awesome. <laughs> And you know me, I love it because it runs Arch so, too. So in the past, we talked about the Mega Core, which yeah. is a crazy four socket machine. Yeah, this is Ultra Core. Yeah. It's big cousin. It's uh, real big cousin. It's got four of the new uh, Xeon fifteen core processors. Oh, fifteen, That's 15 cores plus hyper threading <laughs> for a total of hundred and twenty threads in the in or hundred and twenty logical cores. Oh my God. It also has a terabyte of RAM. Which is the same amount of RAM as the old uh, Mega Core. The yeah. difference is because these new Intel processors support 1.5 terabytes per socket, this system could be upgraded to hold 6 terabytes of RAM. Wow. And as you can see in the picture there, in order to stuff that much RAM yeah. in it, because it has 96 RAM slots, <laughs> they basically had to just stack RAM on every surface in the machine. <laughs> Right, you can see in the middle, of the middle yeah. there's all RAM, but yeah. on the sides and the other side, yeah. and they're just they're literally just stuffing RAM everywhere there is free space. This is so amazing. This is a custom build if I've ever seen one. Yes. Wow. And the, the greatest thing is, uh, so the customer called up, needs this custom build. IX had it done in a week. Wow. Even though they'd never built anything this big before. Look at all those CPUs. That is so amazing. Yep. It's more look at all the RAM. Yeah. So much RAM. Yeah. Look at all the RAM. RAM. Yeah, RAM. really. Yeah. Huh. That's uh, and I, I didn't I didn't catch what it does, but I did catch it runs Arch Linux. Uh, it's going to be used uh, for science. Science. Boy, I'd love to know more about it. Yeah. Uh, t- it's actually going to run Arch Linux. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I know. That's why I'd love to know more. I'm like, hmm, science and Arch Linux on this kind of I would love to know. <laughs> oh boy, that just really gets me excited thinking about how fast that thing is. So this is where you have to get started. Go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Now, if you're like me and you just need some nice, reliable storage for your small business, they can handle that. All the way up to the craziest stuff that only your biggest dreams could come up with. I mean, they can they can do it. And the great thing is they've got the bench to pull it off from the software experts, the people that actually have created the technology you rely on, some of the best open source enthusiasts, advocates, and developers. They've also got the partnerships with the hardware companies. It really is a win-win, and they wrap it all up with white glove support. So go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap and check them out. So yes. cool. Uh, in particular, they also have, uh, they've just kind of stealth announced uh, that FreeNAS just got the first commits to be able to handle um, automatic uh, hot spares. Oh, yeah, cool. ZFSD is actually a thing now. That's really exciting. It's been committed to the FreeNAS repo. There's no release with it yet, but it's coming. 
It's coming soon. So when when that kind of thing means coming soon, it's coming soon like me, like six months, or does that mean like a year until everybody's Probably got it? Probably sooner than six months for sure. Nice, nice. Hey, speaking of BSD, you know what just hit the interwebs while just a few minutes ago while we were doing this here TechSnap show? That would be episode 79 of the BSD Now program. Just add QMU. Yes, uh, that's talking about using QMU to build uh, ARM binaries for things like your Raspberry Pi on your real big computer so it doesn't take months. <laughs> oh, very nice. So that is uh, episode 79? Using a big AMD64 to compile uh, for ARM and MIPS. And uh, this would be a good spot to start the download because we're about halfway through today's episode. Yep. Get the HD version. Check it out with Alan and Chris Moore. And yep. uh, looks like a good one, Alan. Cool. All right. Well, uh, you know what that means. We've come to the end of the news segment. And once we're at the end of the news segment, that means there's only one appropriate action to take. And that is the TechSnap Feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website, or even better, starting a thread in our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. And Alan, our first email this week comes in from Kenneth, and he's got a couple of big ZFS questions. He says, hi, Alan and Chris. Congratulations on 200-plus episodes. I've been watching somewhere since around 10 or 20, and TechSnap is a weekly event that I look forward to. Love the uh, love the show and the level of depth of awesomeness you guys keep delivering on a weekly basis. Well, thanks. Butter and solid. Uh, so he's a Linux Unix sysadmin at a hosting company, and he says the show's helped quite a bit all around. I used to work a lot with Solaris, uh, so now they're using a lot of ZFS now. Uh, and uh, Alan's endorsement of ZFS on FreeBSD has helped a lot in the decision to migrate those systems to FreeBSD, and everything now runs much smoother than before. So here's the questions. Number one, Alan, I have written a ZFS replicator shell script that works on FreeBSD and Linux. It supports grandfather. Uh, it supports grandfathering scheme with incremental ZFS. And Alan, what's a grandfathering scheme? Uh, so that means basically, uh, it's like um, when you're doing incremental backups, and you'd be like, I want to. You know, keep one a month for so long, and then oh, one grandfathering every three for so long. the back. Uh, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. like the backup scheme. Okay, um, uh, with incremental ZFS send and receives with recursive snapshots and a lot of other features. I'm not a seasoned coder and would normally keep this kind of stuff to myself, but with your encouragements to putting your code out there, even if it's not ninja level, made me document the script and beautification on it and do some beautification on it, figuring out GitHub and posting it on there. And he links us to that. It's on github.com slash bungask, B-U-N-D-G-A-S slash Z-F-S dash replicator if you're looking for this. It's also in the email in our show notes. Mm-hmm. It says, I want to add the functionality to keep the oldest snapshot, the grandfathers, for longer on the slave than on the master. But when I tried that, the Z-F-S send receive itself destroyed the oldest snapshot on the slave on the next incremental sync. As I'm doing an incremental sync on the newest data, why would it have to destroy the oldest snapshot on the slave? Shouldn't the oldest snapshot be able to exist if, exist if there is enough space on the slave and not be destroyed because it was removed from the master? Is there a way around this? I use recursive snapshots and send them recursively and incrementally if that makes a difference. Um, as long as the newer ones are in sync, keeping older ones on the slave should be fine. Um... One way you can do is uh, you can use ZFS hold uh, to lock the snapshot so it can't be deleted and then see what error message you get and it will explain more why it's doing that. I'd have to look at your script to see what's going on a bit. Uh, I'm kind of wanting to look into that more. Uh, I've uh, not because I wanted to, but because no one else was. I uh, took over maintainership of the uh, similar script ZFS X or ZXFer. 
uh, which does basically the same thing. And uh, it can sometimes be a problem. Uh, in particular, I'm very excited about the conference I'm going to next week because one of the talks is from Matt Ahrens, the co-creator of ZFS, talking about new features specifically in uh, ZFS replication, Ooh. including the resumable send we've all been waiting for forever, but also apparently something similar to a ZFS uh, rebase, which allows you to do uh, to sort out a problem when you have uh, your incremental replication go sideways and, and you don't have a common snapshot between the two sides anymore, uh, to be able to not just have to resync everything, uh, which would be a huge value to me, considering that uh, I'm replicating huge amounts of data over the internet all mm. the time. Mm. So uh, <clears throat> I bet you've run into this one, Alan. Question number two. Uh, sometimes we have hard drives that start to sort of fail and crash slowly, and ZFS will partially or completely hang when that single disk with 100% weight with minimal or no throughput. Once we couldn't even execute ZFS commands, it would just hang until we physically removed the crash drives and uh, everything would then kick back again on FreeBSD. We use SAS and Nearline SAS on LS LSI HBAs with the newer firmware, and we only sometimes see errors in the ZPool status when this happens, so that can't be trusted to detect all the errors. I've had this problem on both Solaris and FreeBSD, so I think the people must have seen this too. Other people must have seen this too, uh, but not much seems to be written about it. What's the best approach in handling this? You know, what can I monitor? What scripts could detect yeah, this? Yeah, it's the the biggest problem is that disks don't fail completely. Uh, oftentimes, they just kind of, you know, kind of hang around and stuff. Um, normally, there's you know uh, timeouts, and basically the drive would, you know, uh, it could hang for thirty seconds at a time, mm. and you get four retries as the default on SATA. On SAS, is a little different. And then the device should actually just disappear. Like the OS just reject the device then and act as if it was unplugged. And then the pool should be able to continue. Um, I'm one, I guess it might depend slightly on how your, uh, your pool is set up. Uh, Have you had that kind of laggy thing configured? where it just doesn't do transfer very well when there's a drive in there? That's I mean, I've no, noticed that. I've had, I've had one where on a, a SATA-based array yes. where one of the drives was dying and it would you know, pause for like eight seconds at yeah, a time. Yeah, and that's once exactly I, what I saw. Once I lowered the retry count in the OS to make it not try so hard, it sped it up a little bit. Oh, interesting. And eventually, because it was a, it because I had the redundancy, I just zpool offline the drive and got my performance back until I could replace the drive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then I resilvered it and, and went on. But yeah, sometimes it can hang. Uh, Make sure you're using newer FreeBSD. That helps a lot with uh, a lot of the niggly stuff has been sorted out a bit. And then uh, um, in the end, I would say you have to look at, at the SAS controller and, and see if you can't make the device time out when it's misbehaving. Yeah, that seems to be the, that would be the trick. All right. Uh, but yeah, so it, it can be a bit of a problem there and catching it is an issue. Uh, I had a worse problem uh, when I was first using ZFS on my very first setup. Um, the Adaptic controller card we had had a problem where the driver would hang. Or, oh, yeah, yeah. Or the driver or the device, or the driver would cause the device to do something, and it would just go away for hours at a time and then come back. And so ZFS just stalled waiting in the whole time, and then it would come back finally, and it would catch up. And it was just like, yes. what the hell yeah. is going on yeah. here? Yeah, very frustrating. Yeah, in that case, it was actually the controller that was a problem. Yeah. Uh, in your case, it's hard to say. Um, Nice one is when it, you are having problems is if you can run GSAT or something, but uh, sometimes you have the problem if your operating system is also on the pool in question, and so 
you know, when the pool's not working, neither are your tools in the operating system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, all right. Very good stuff. Hopefully some of that will work. G-Stats. Uh, and he, he notes at the bottom that his script isn't meant to compete with ZX for apparently it's different. I'll have to take a look at his. It might have useful features I can steal. Yeah. Uh, but in particular, uh, ZX for does have a switch to say, you know, don't delete any snapshot that's older than this because we're purposely trying to grandfather. Yeah. So uh, Smash writes in, he says, Alan and Chris, and th- this might, this starts as a PF Sense question, but then we might be able to take it broader than that too. He says, uh, he's on the East Coast as well, and he has a PF Sense limiter uh, traffic shaping question for us. Uh, <laughs> since Christmas, they now have four Roku devices, and they're blowing past their 300 gigabyte Comcast ca- crap cast uh, limit, he says. Well, oh boy, man, a 300 gigabyte limit is rough. I've been trying to limit all of my daughter's outgoing internet access on a schedule. Oh, man, what a pain in the butt, and cut them off at bedtime. I've had limited success. Success. I was able to shut down their access at bedtime with blo- with a block firewall rule during bedtime schedule. But I put another rule in that uses limiters. The first rule, uh, firewall is used, and then a new firewall is ignored. Next, I tried to use one firewall rule that used limiters with schedules. So I have one schedule that is bedtime hours and another that is not bedtime hours. In my up limiter, I have a two megabit. Well, he gives us all the details here. Um, he says, last night I tested out for a bit my daughter's Roku devices, and they were still able to stream for 15 minutes after bedtime schedule kicked in. I have triple checked the schedule configs. Maybe my PF limiters are uh, <clears throat> do not like a zero megabyte as value. I'm targeting an alias list that contains my daughter's static IP addresses. He says, my question is, am I going about this setup the right way? And is the best way to set up a blocking pool of IP addresses from reaching the internet based on schedules? Thanks for all you do and keep up the great work. Yeah, I think uh, the uh, sentence there on line 11 is the one that might be catching him is once the session's already open, it's in the state table and a rule much earlier in the firewall says... If this is already an open connection that we've already allowed, we're not going to start blocking it all of a sudden. And then his rule saying, hey, don't allow traffic out after bedtime isn't kicking in at that point. I think that might be what's doing it. Hmm. Hmm. Um, that, that could be a down. Yeah. Uh, and that one gets a little trickier. It's like if you want to cut off certain sessions and not others. and Yeah. I'm... <laughs> When I'm a parent, I'm not sure if I would use that bedtime rule thing, mostly because I've seen it. That, that. So when I used to play uh, games a lot more than I have time to now, uh, one of the people I played with was in school, and, and his parents had this setup. I think he was, he was in high school, and his parents still had him cut off. at like He couldn't use the internet after 10 p.m. So what he would do is come home from school and play on the internet until 10 p.m., then do his homework. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When he yeah. didn't have the internet. Oh, yeah. And it seems like that's the opposite of what you want them to be doing. Yeah, my my. So the way, <clears throat> see, back in my day, the way we would, the way my parents would, you know, make me get off the internet is they'd say, "Okay, hang up." And now it was my dad's turn to get on the internet, and he would go start some big download or something, and he'd have the connection clogged up, and I just couldn't use it because the line was taken up. So what I'd do is I'd wait for him to go to bed, and I'd pick up the phone, and I'd hold down like the nine key for long enough to make it disconnect him from the internet, and then I would dial back up and reconnect once everybody was in bed because you know dial up yes. was unreliable. So for all he knew, he just got disconnected. Yeah, he just could never finish downloading this big file. No. <laughs> So it doesn't work. It doesn't work. But you can yeah. try. I don't know what I'm going to do either. The, the cap thing scares me a lot because we pull down a lot of content online. And I hate the idea of yeah. having to manage it because we're running out of data. Oof. Yeah. yeah, and that's the, the other thing is it's like how do you do it? Do you say, well, you can only use a megabit per second or something and then you're just slowing everything down enough that they can't eat it all up quickly enough? But yeah. you know, if, if they're going to watch the same number of movies no matter what, then 
is that really going to do anything? And if look you, into if you shape it low enough, you could cause Netflix or whatever they're watching a Roku to go to a lower bit rate. Yeah. And maybe that's helpful. You know, they're, you know, but, but these caps are just going to force people to pirate because what are you going to do if you can't stream? Well, you just have a large local stash of stuff that you don't have. You, well, can you just have to download that stuff. Yeah, but you can do that like onesie twosies, right? And then store yeah. them up and then watch them mm-hmm. over time over Plex and you don't need... Yeah, it's just, yeah. It's just the last four days of every month are just download fast. Yeah, you look at how much cap you have left and just go like crazy, and then you just watch. Yeah. I bet people actually, I'm people are already doing this, aren't they? That's yeah. The, yeah that's right. I remember uh, at one point my cap was only seventy five gigs. That was horrible. Oh, do you have a cap uh, now? You not now? No, no, no not not now. No. But uh, w- then after that, it was three hundred plus gigs, and so I never ran into it. Yeah. If I didn't uh, go business here at the studio, the the I think the consumer grade internet here does have caps. Well, the worst part is yours would be the upload. Yes, the cap. You you get a cap and it counts to your upload. Yeah, and I'm streaming twenty four seven. An eight hundred kilobit stream twenty four seven. That's a, a one megabit stream is three hundred and fifty gigs a month. Yeah. So you easily blow through a three hundred gig cap just yeah. streaming the Plus, show. Plus, then we also have the audio stream everything. that also or is going. This fact that right now I'm sending you a megabit stream. For, yeah. You know. Yeah. Or when it was working in sixteen by nine, I was sending you a five megabit stream. Yeah. Yeah. So it really is, yeah, it just wouldn't, the cap thing just wouldn't work. Um, yeah. All right, uh, well, uh, Bridger writes in, or uh, Biggie, depending on uh, what nickname he wants to go by, mm-hmm. and he has some questions, and we might be able to just apply some general knowledge to He says, hey, guys, I have a question, but first I just want to say thanks for the show. Uh, he says, I've been toying around with web servers and own cloud. It's fun listening to you two talk about it since you're passionate and enjoy your work. Keep up the good work. I'm going to be setting up a few services for a small company. Basically, it's going to be an own cloud server and another one with open Dockman for DMS, both on DigitalOcean servers. I try to go as low-tech as possible, and I try to add as few add-ons to the server to have a fewer attack surface. So no FTP, like I'm just using SSH for connections. I just wanted to hear generally what I should be doing to secure my Ubuntu servers. Your ideas will be helpful keeping me focused on the best ways to secure the servers since you guys are the best. Thanks again for the great show. And he wanted to hear me try to pronounce his name, which I probably did horribly. Mm-hmm. So general tips for keeping like a web server secure, Alan. Yeah, there's a couple things. Um, you know, if you can make the direct, the if you separate the directory where OwnCloud's storing the actual files from the directory where OwnCloud has its code and basically make the place where OwnCloud has its code be read-only, especially to the user that the, is running the script as a web server so that they can't... Um, right. Uh, and I would add, add to that, because it kind of goes along with what you're saying, is make sure, and it will be on an Ubuntu box, the web server is running as a low-privileged user, so that way if they compromise yeah, like your web server... W or www-data yeah. or user... Yeah, and it will be on that, on that, on that uh, Ubuntu rig he sets up. So that's the number one thing, really, is uh, make sure that anything that you, you can remotely connect to on that box doesn't run as root, if possible. Uh, so, like, for example, BitTorrent Sync, I run that as a standard regular user, and the only place that user account has access to is its home directory that it's syncing to. Outside of that, it can't get to anything. That way, when somebody compromises it, hopefully it limits the amount of damage that gets done. Of course, also patches. Keep your patches up to date, right, Alan? Yep. Update your S. Um there's a lot of good guides on securing Ubuntu specifically, but I think uh, you've kind of got right. the good mindset See, keeping it minimal. Yeah, uh, and then, you know, if I was doing it on FreeBSD, I know you don't want to hear this, but for everybody else, obviously this, this guy wants to use Ubuntu and that's fine and you should do that. Uh, but if you <laughs> do it with the jail, you can use a NullFS mount so that the code for you, for own cloud is read-only as far as the jail where the actual uh, PHP is getting executed mm-hmm. so that they can never modify the code for own cloud. Uh, and then if you just uh, with 
the path restrictions and so on in the web server make sure that they can never run code that isn't in the own cloud directory. Right? And so now they can't change those files and they can't run files anywhere other than that. Right? And then every file that's served out of the download the directory of the files where own cloud keeps its actual the 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 user files, the data files, is only ever downloaded. Excuse me, never gets executed, then uh, it should be pretty locked down. Yeah. And I guess if... Uh, no, then, then your only worry is someone actually downloading a file they're not supposed to have. You don't have the worry of them uh, being able to run their own code on the server to do whatever they want to do. Uh, and if you really want to go crazy, and if you really wanted to just try to make sure it's as secure as possible, look into AppArmor. Uh, it's a form of mandatory access controls that uses kernel-level uh, controls to make sure that only certain programs can run. And only those programs that run only do the things that you explicitly expect them to do. So what AppArmor will do, for example, is it'll allow Apache to go all day long. Uh, but as soon as Apache goes to an area in the system that it normally doesn't touch, AppArmor will prevent that and generate an alert yes. for you. Uh, FreeBC also has mandatory access control like yeah. that. Uh, the most popular one is uh, that I used to see. It's not so much anymore. Was you know when people still had CGI scripts, is that you'd end up with uh, your Apache would end up running a Perl script at a slash TMP. That would then change its ho- its uh, process name to try to look like the web server, except for it always tried to look like one on Linux, and so it didn't match up and spot it. But, there is uh, a pretty good guide, and I think he's using fourteen oh four. He should be. The LTS. Use the mm-hmm. LTS if you're using Ubuntu, so that way you get patches for more than like you know, a few months. Yes, and you don't have the problem of having to upgrade, and that upgrade changes the versions of a bunch of stuff. Yeah, and stuff yeah, doesn't yeah, work. yeah, yeah. I'll put the App Armor guide for Ubuntu 14.04 uh, in the feedback section uh, for him, so that way, uh, if it is something he wants to do, I mean, that would be like sort of the belt, belt and suspenders. Really, though, I mean, I think it's uh, you know, focus on your uh, your user account privileges, focus on keeping your patches up to date, keep the software stack as minimal as possible. Don't forget, DigitalOcean droplets are cheap, so instead of adding a bunch of functionality, you could consider just having another droplet. And before you make big changes, take snapshots. Uh, yes, like before snapshot, you roll out App Armor, for example, why not take a snapshot and you know, yeah, use especially if you got it working. And that, that's the other thing is you probably want to do this incrementally, right? Get it working, then add this, mm-hmm. then make sure it still works, and then add Because, uh, you know, if you make many changes at once and then something doesn't work, it's harder to figure out which thing's causing it not to work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Uh, so there you go. One change at a time. Now, uh, you have your chance to get a question answered. Send that into techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Go over to the contact page, and you can also just fill out our form online or start it up in our subreddit. We will be uh, pre-recorded next week, but don't worry. You can still send your emails in, and we'll save them up for when we get back. And uh, we love to get them. So uh, I also love that subreddit. It's a great chance, too, to answer some questions since we are going to be in pre-record next week. If somebody posts a question and you want to jump in there and give them an answer right away, we always appreciate yep. that, too. We have a great community. But, Alan... With the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that just didn't quite fit at the top of the show, but we still want to go over them and give you some links to follow up on your own. And heck, some of these links came from our great subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. Like our first Roundup story you knew this was going to happen. Fraud comes to Apple Pay. Dun, dun, dun. And actually, Apple Pay, the software, seems to be in pretty good shape. Surprise, surprise, the weakness comes with the banks. Uh, here it says here, the weakness identified by the researcher occurs at an earlier stage when a user is adding a credit card to Apple Pay. When a user adds a card, Apple says it sends the information, such as the type of phone, the last four digits of the user's phone number, and the user's general location to the issuing bank, which then decides whether to provision the card to Apple Pay. Well, isn't that interesting? 
all that information. They're taking. They're looking at. So you don't actually enter your credit card number. You enter all this information. No. Uh, so with Apple Pay, you take a picture of the credit card. And um. it, it, it reads, it OCRs, all of that. And then it uses, of course, what they know about you. Apple knows about you by being an iPhone user, like your phone and your general location. The bank then gets all of that, which is a really interesting verification thing. I didn't know they were getting location. And the bank gets mm-hmm. all of that. And then the bank decides whether to ask. So the, the software allows for the bank to then request more information for verification. This seems to be where things kind of fall apart. Uh, it seems like in most cases, the banks, uh, instead of asking, are so eager to get people to sign up for Apple Pay that they are maybe not asking the appropriate questions or the customer service representatives that are looking at this stuff are not properly trained, uh, also because of a rush well, to get this I, out I the door. I kind of assume it was an automated system. Like, I would think so, too. But if you're the, taking a picture of the credit card and then you want it to work, you don't have 20 minutes to wait for somebody at the bank I, to look at it and decide, I right? think when it gets bumped up to like, oh, we might have fraud here, then that's when the bank's right. Supposed to have, and that's where they're sort of failing to actually suss it out. Right. So then but they're I'm allowing. I'm guessing the banks are just connecting it to their existing system and treating it as if the person stuck their credit card yep. in the point of sales terminal at a store at the location they're being told about. And yeah, um, I, part of the reason that the system works the way it does, I think, is because Apple wanted to have low friction. So I can't know that you can blame the banks for wanting it to be low friction too. But right, yeah, true. Um, it just seems like is that more secure than people typing in the credit card number and like the CVV? The, is, is, I guess, like, is that the problem? Are they not using the CVC? It's, it's at the, the number yeah. On the back it's tokenized, the so it's just they, there's just a there's no credit card information, no name, no 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 expiration date, and no no code exchange. Just each transaction has a token that is given to the from the right, user's phone to the merchant. That's after the fact. That's for the actual Apple Pay transaction. Yeah, yeah. But when you're adding the credit card, right. Is it not? Using that digit as the verification. Yeah. Well, I guess if you have the if you're taking a picture of the physical credit card. Yeah. Yeah. It uses it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but so they're basically saying the problem is the the banks aren't verifying. So are people like physically stealing credit cards to do this? Or yeah, they're what? using stolen. Car- they're putting stolen cards into the payment system, and then the banks, even though it's getting flagged, are allowing it through. Right. And and then the merchants sure. are having to pay for the fraud, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> that sucks. Well, <laughs> Like, is Apple Pay really being used for anything that costs more than $20? Probably not, no. <laughs> like, like, a burger, know, um, a sandwich. We have, we have the, the tap to pay stuff here. Yeah, yeah. Except for most places, it only works up to $50, and then, then they're like, oh. no, stick the chip in and type oh, in Oh, no, your I don't think code. there's any limit on the amount. You could buy, like, right. you could buy, like, a, like, you can go down and buy, like, a $5,000 MacBook if you want from the Apple Store using it. But, well, uh, from the Apple Store, I can see that for yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, but I meant, like, if you're, I can think you go to Best Buy and buy a thousand dollar TV with it. Best Buy doesn't take. See, no, no place that has big transactions is really taking it. It's like it's like uh, food. It's like it's like pharmacies yeah. are taking it right now. Uh, that's where, at least where I see it out in public. I right. It's 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 a small fast yeah. transaction. Yeah. And it, I don't know that the fraud would be that lucrative. Well, for that those. might be why that's where it's at right now. Right. Right. Well, yeah, but it, yeah, I just I don't see, you know a gang going around stealing a bunch of credit cards in order to get free coffee. Uh, yeah, I agree. It's not quite the same as stealing credit cards to go to Best Buy and bunch of TVs right. and, and then sell them on the black market. Think about the clientele, the, the type cash. of people. Like, So you're stealing credit cards, and then you got to load it into a $600 smartphone. Yeah. <laughs> you Which know? is basically a glorified tracking machine yes. for the cops to track you down. Yeah, because then they're sending their location yeah. <laughs> when they do it. <laughs> That doesn't seem like a good idea at all. <laughs> uh, all right. Yeah, the bigger question is, uh, you know, 
iPhones getting stolen is already an epidemic. Yeah. If I steal your iPhone, how hard is it for me to start charging, getting free coffee out of your phone? You got to have fingerprint ID. So however well that works. Mm. Yeah. I imagine if I had that um, sticky clear paper right. that or, uh, stuff they use on CSI mm-hmm. that I could just lift your fingerprint mm-hmm. off the screen and then use it again and again and again. Speaking of uh, CSI, I, I love yes. this next story because I've actually just recently been doing something kind of similar to this. Uh, threat post, watch CSI Cyber so that way we don't have to. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they have a couple of clips and my, does this look bad. Should I play one? Might get us taken uh, down. I don't but... know. Yeah, that'll get us taken down. But it's but, ca- uh, I don't know. The best part is that they had a bunch of the people from there watch it uh, while being in a chat, and then they uh, posted their chat log along with the timestamps from the episode, so that you can actually yes, I'm seeing that. You know, it's hilarious. You can watch the episode and see where they're poking fun at it and so on. Uh, the computer stock image they use to fade from present to tense, past tense, along with the beeping sounds are really tough to take. Basic opsec from the Chinese, German, Jap, foreign voices. Oh my gosh, holographic hand taking the SD card. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I gotta just play just a second of it. I'll just play a second of it because this looks so just mute bad. Mute the sound and it'll be fine. I gotta hear out. it. Hardware's mm. clean. I'm bagging for evidence. Didn't bear any fruit. Well, Listen to all those I got sounds. Green code here. Yes. First so the one device, guy you know is a hacker because he's got a neck beard. The <laughs> and then the girl's sure a hacker because she's got funny colored hair. All green text, of course. Malware. Yeah. Malware. Oh, malware. Oh man, look at that malware log. Oh yeah, it's red. Oh. Oh no. It's a black screen with green text, but if the text turns rat. red, it's malware. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, boy. That's pretty bad. I'm not going to play anymore. It's pretty bad. I just, I don't know where they decided, how they decided on those people to play the characters either. Just, yeah. I don't know. I'm glad that we're calling this I've crap seen other out. shows that have done better jobs at that stuff yeah. when that wasn't even their focus. Uh, I think the Sandra Bullock movie, The Net, did a better job than that movie, than that TV show does. Yeah. <laughs> that movie was quite bad, Alan. Uh, uh, yes, and that TV show is trying very hard. And then yeah. It's just... Uh, yeah, I was watching oh. I was watching another show kind of for the same exact reason because I was going to do a breakdown on Filter on a show called State of Affairs, and they, mm-hmm. they get their system hacked, and it just goes off the rails so bad. Yeah, uh, I wanted to. I want to talk about this. That's I. I just don't know where this is gonna go, but uh, that's our next roundup story. Google confirms it wants to become a wireless carrier. Uh, I, I have no idea what the ramifications of this could be. I suppose more competition is good. Uh, I don't know if I want Google to and, be that. And I'm, I'm sure Google will be very cheap because they will make the money off knowing where you are all the time yeah. and using that. Yeah. And you're using Google services and buying stuff from the Play Store. And wouldn't it be interesting though if in this, if if Google is their own carrier, are they going to charge you for transfer from Google services, or would all Google services be be free? That could be their big thing: is that uh, unlimited transfer to Google Cloud stuff. So when you switch to storing, instead of having the music on your phone, yeah, you have it in Google Music. They have Google, a Google sorry. Music service. Uh, and you can stream from it, and that streaming doesn't count against your bandwidth. You have documents. Limit. They've That's got Google Drive. They've got, I mean, Gmail is a bandwidth hog just in itself. If but you have a but lot of really, email. the problem is that the bandwidth restrictions imposed by your cell phone company aren't about the backhaul to the internet. It's about the bandwidth between the tower and your phone, and there's only so much for the people on yeah. that tower. Yeah. And I don't see that Google has solved that. Right, because would they extend that even to Hangouts? Because could you imagine if Hangouts was free? They'd have right. to charge for data. They'd have to. Yeah, and basically, unless they're going to build a whole bunch of towers. Uh, no, they're going to use Sprint and T-Mobile, it sounds like. Right. And so, you know, there's only so much bandwidth there. Yeah. And you have to have some limits on it. Otherwise, uh, people would just go nutty. 
But, you know, Google's perfectly willing to lose money. So... <laughs> Yeah, that's true. All right, our next roundup story is uh, is a post over at the AWS uh, uh, maintenance blog. An important update about upcoming AWS security maintenance. Does that mean an outage is coming, Alan? Uh, Yes. uh, So there's apparently another critical flaw in Zen. It hasn't been publicly released yet, but Amazon and some of the other places that use Zen are Uh, having to... That better not come out the week we're gone. Um, Well, we'll talk about it when we get back. uh, Amazon posted an update to that saying that fewer servers than they thought will have to reboot because they're able to... Oh, good. um, Live migration stealth patch it. What an or idea. What an idea. Well, good to know. Uh, but there are still some instance types that will have to be rebooted, and they've posted a date, and they're like, we've apl- we'll apply the patch by this time. So if between when we've applied the patch and when we're scheduling the downtime, you can reboot the instance yourself. Or, no, sorry, not reboot. You have to actually like stop and start it. Because that way it'll come up on a different on a box that's already been patched instead of. If you reboot the instance, that stays on the machine it's on. But if you stop it and start it again, it will come up on one of the machines that's already been patched. No. So that way you can do it at your convenience instead of when they're just randomly okay. going to... Oh, that's nice. And if you're, if you're following Amazon best practices and you have multiple VMs in multiple availability zones, those won't ever reboot at the same time. So you, your service shouldn't go down if you're using Amazon the right way, which is using many different virtual machines in right. different availability zones. different zones. zones. And so on. Yeah. Uh, you know, most people think, oh, Amazon means paying for renting one Amazon EC2 instance like you would from Dropbox or um, DigitalOcean. But it's not. If you want to use Amazon the Amazon way, you're paying the hundreds of dollars a month per instance for multiple ones in order to be sure that uh, not, no, two, not all of them are going to be down at once. Yeah. Yeah. Craziness. Uh, Alan, this next story I like a lot. Uh, just not that I'm a not that I'm a dark cloud, but uh, sometimes when the Kickstarter hype gets super strong, it's good to remind us that every now and then things can go wrong. Uh, this well, in particular, this one's more about a bunch of photographer type people that don't know anything about software, assuming that they can just make software. Make, yeah. So this is a half million dollar Kickstarter. Yeah. So they went wrong. The Kickstarter for fifty thousand. Uh, British pounds, so about a hundred thousand dollars. So, so the goal for this Kickstarter was a hundred thousand pounds. Okay, uh, to make these ninety-nine dollar things that trigger your your camera to take time lapses and so on. They got five hundred thousand dollars in funding for it, and a year and some later, Nothing. it turns out they're not going to be able to make the product because they spent ten times more than they budgeted on software. Because I imagine their budget for software was literally just made up out of thin air. It's like, oh, software that'll be twenty thousand dollars, <laughs> or something. Like they just made up the number. I don't know what it was based on, but it was complete baloney. Uh, and also, they're like, oh, they based the whole device around we're going to buy this microprocessor and use it, and then it turns out it's not going to work. So then you just switch it, and then they had to start over or something. But also, they found out to buy all the parts uh, to make the product that they finally came up with. And with that, their software will run on. They'd have to sell the devices for three hundred and fifty dollars a piece instead of ninety nine dollars a piece. <laughs> and so now, don't oh, that's awful. And then they're like, "Well, if we can get enough pre orders," and then they got like one percent of the people that said they would pre order actually were willing to pay for the new price. Jeez, that's kind of sad, but you know that's the risk you take with these Kickstarter projects because people don't always have a background. It's one well, of the things it, I look at. It's yeah, it's definitely you know you see this, uh, and you know. At, Near the end, when they had already screwed up a bunch of times, uh, they hired a real project manager, and he was like, uh, if you had brought this to me in the beginning, I would have told you, don't even try this with less than $2 million. Yeah. Um, But they also uh, talk about some of the other stuff, like because they were only 
thinking it was, that this project was going to be a $100,000 project. Uh, when they got the half a million, they had so much money in the bank, they were just like, oh, if we have a problem, we'll just throw money at it. And, and they weren't as cautious with the money as they should have been, and they spent too much of it on things they didn't necessarily oh, need. Oh, it's painful so. to hear this. Yeah. But I think uh, you can see a similar problem uh, with some of the ones where when, they go, when you get too much funding... And you start having with these stretch goals, right? It's like, oh, well, it's, it'll cost this much to make the game, but if we get this little bit more, we'll add this feature to it or that feature, right? And then all they start adding them a little too eagerly, right? And you get this scope creep, and all of a sudden, you know, if if we get twenty percent more money, we'll add this extra feature, which is actually going to take sixty percent more time, and and so you know that extra the scope creep is what kills them too. Yeah, very much. Oh, that's kind of a but sad one. Mostly, but I think their their big problem here was their budget was complete fantasy. Yeah. I, I I don't think they was based on, you know, obviously they hadn't built one of these products before, so they didn't have that. Right, but and then you have the didn't have, you have the flip side like uh, Pebble has a Kickstarter going on right now that's like like fifteen million dollars in funding, massively successful because they've shipped a product, they've proven they can do it, and I think that's what we're starting to see now is the Kickstarters that are backed by people that have experience delivering the thing that they're kickstarting. Those, I think, have a much higher chance of succeeding because people are going to get a little more savvy about this kind of stuff. Uh, yes, but also, you know, sometimes it's more that there's just a celebrity name attached yep. to it or something. And so it's uh, like, just the right amount well, of flash, this, even. Right, yeah. Or, you know, it's like, oh, well, this is the funding for a movie and, mm-hmm. and there's mm-hmm. these big name actors in it. Yes, but who's actually producing it and who's actually directing it and is it actually going to happen on that budget? Right. And yeah. Although then we see the most successful Kickstarter where, you know, it was. A card game that's easy to produce. There's not much yes. risk of it not working. Yes. And, you know, their goal was $10,000 and they got, what was it, like $8 million or something. Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. Uh, all right, this next story, guess what? Not a big, su- well, it is kind of a surprise after all of the hoopla about default encryption on iOS 8 and Lollipop. It seems that Google sort of quietly backed off default encryption on Lollipop devices and their requirements for OEMs. Uh, so yeah. if you look, so, yeah, uh, in in September 2014, Google announced that with Android 5.0, all manufacturers were going to be required to do full disk encryption by default on all cell phones. Uh, however, when they uh, announced the second gen Moto E and Galaxy S6, uh, all of a sudden, its whole disk encryption is strongly recommended rather than required. Yeah, and the rumor yeah. has it that when they when they started recommend when they started requiring it, I, I don't know if it's because because Android uses extended file system or what it is, but like the performance, I guess. So what I read was they tried default encryption on the new Nexus 6, the phone you have, mm-hmm. and that the performance when they turned on encryption was worse on that device than it was on the old Nexus 5 phone. Like just it got so slow that like the manufacturers like we can't yeah, ship our phones with this. Yeah, I don't think ARM supports like ASNI or something to actually yeah. offload the encryption. And I think Android needs a slightly different file system or a totally different file system to make it a little bit faster too. Yeah. Because uh, it didn't seem um, to be a problem for iOS. I mean, iOS right. is still shipping with encryption and it doesn't seem to be any slower. So. Right, well, they have a special chip in theirs. I don't know if Android does or not. Yeah. Uh, and also, yeah. I'm sure there might have been pushback from governments in certain countries. And if you're a phone manufacturer from that country, you're like, hey, Google, could you say that change that from required to recommended so that we can ship our phones without it. The other thing it? I wasn't clear is like it also kind of competes it's a couple of the different Android manufacturers. The one I'm thinking of predominantly though is Samsung. Like they have like Samsung Knox. It's like their own encryption vault that they want the customer to use. Right. So some of, their, some of their very own hardware OEMs are shipping competing products on their devices. It's not kind of, sort of. So mm-hmm. 
Alan, uh, this next story, uh, what? Why SSDs are obsolete? Yep. I'm still madly in love. What is it? Now I'm just going right yes. to the chips? What's going uh, on? But the, the biggest problem is obviously, you know, we have this uh, level of indirection. SSDs are not hard drives, but the, uh, an SSD basically presents itself to the computer as a hard drive because that's all your computer knows how to deal with. Yeah. And so that has problems. Then you have the flash translation layer. How many of these have we seen bugs in causes all kinds of problems, yeah, right? Yeah. We've seen lots of firmware bugs and problems where like, oh, on this SSD, once it gets full, it just, the performance just shits to bed or whatever. Uh, and also we've seen like over-provisioning things and, and basically the SSDs become this big black hole and you don't understand what's actually happening inside of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, whereas when we see some uh, newer stuff, like the uh, NVMe, which is non-volatile memory express. So these are cards that go into your PCI Express port. Now, there are SSDs that do this, but with an NVMe, the idea is that the driver understands that what you're talking to is actually uh, just flash memory, and it's not pretending to be a hard drive. Yeah. That's pretty good. And, uh, yeah, iX is shipping these uh, for uh, ZFS now as well. Hmm. I, uh, I guess it's time to transition, Alan. One step forward. Uh, not necessarily. Uh, you know, in your laptop and your desktop, you probably still want SSDs. Do I? But, uh, well, your laptop's probably not going to get an NVMe anytime soon. Uh, and your desktop is probably overkill. It's more just that in servers, it's starting to take over. Mm. Interesting. And hopefully, we'll actually start seeing more things like NANDFS, where uh, all the, the, the equivalent of the flash translation layer and so on and, and all the where leveling algorithm and all that is happening in software as part of the file system driver so that you have knobs you can tweak, mm-hmm. right? Like I, depending on my uses, I want to decide how much over-provisioning I want, you know, and how much slack I want and when to trim stuff and, and how to, to deal with all of that. Right. That would be, uh, yeah. I could see how a user more can break their system when there's though. a bug, it could be fixed more easily. Yeah. I could see how, though, you could introduce bugs, too. Like, it's almost yes. like it, it could go the other way where it could be too much control. Too much, you could do too much damage if something... Yes, but... It's true with know, everything, though, I suppose. Uh, the, the Unix way of doing things is not stopping you doing something stupid because that would also stop you doing something clever. Yeah. Yep. And I think when it's in the right hands, it makes it for a better you system. Know. All it's, right. Uh, it's like anything, right? It's a very useful tool, but you can hurt yourself with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, our our last story is don't tell me don't tell me another flaw that affects everything Android five O and less. Uh, everything less than five O five O is safe. Ah, five O for this particular safe. one. Okay, what is it? Uh, uh, it's a root vulnerability in the way Java does something on Android. Uh, yeah, it says the, when uh, the object input stream is used on untrusted inputs, an attacker can cause an instance of any class with a non-privileged. Pro- pro- parameterless constructor to be created. Uh, they can have arbitrary values. The malicious object will then uh, typically either be ignored or cast type to which it doesn't fit, implying that no methods will be called in on it and no data from it will be used. However, when it's collected by the GC, the GC will call the object's finalized method. So, some execution there. Yeah. A little so privilege construction object that won't be very useful, but when the system garbage collects it, it will run whatever code you specify that's in the cleanup method. Yeah. And uh, then you root the device. Uh, so you wait so. for the system to get busy where it does a little cleanup, and then you've got it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so apparently this was fixed. Uh, so the issue was reported in July, no, June of 2014, and uh, a proof of concept was shared with Android people. The issue was verified by security at android.com. Uh, then a patch was published in 
November of 2014 and became part of the Android open source port thing. Uh, and then uh, he asked for Android and uh, asked him if it was okay to disclose it, and Android said yes. Do you see the part about how he gets around the A- or why ASLR doesn't prevent it? No, I didn't see it that. says Android does have ASLR, but like uh, all apps, system underscore server is forked from the uh, zygote process. In other words, all apps have the same basic memory layout as system underscore server and should therefore be able to circumvent system servers ASLR. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like a problem, too. But yeah, apparently, if you take his proof of concept code and just open, uh, install an app and open it, it will... Yeah, and then, it, and then once it roots it, it reboots the device and it, it's owned. Yep. <clears throat> yep. But nobody uses, everybody's on Android 5 and above, so it shouldn't be a problem, I don't think. I finally am. <laughs> yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. That's right. Congratulations. Uh, and you like it? Yeah, you mean. You, do you uh, like yeah. it? Yeah, it's nice. I really like the priority feature basically being like, don't, it's silence mode basically, mm-hmm. but auto turn off after whatever amount of time I set. Yeah. And if someone in my contact list has a star by their name, they can make the they phone ring anyway. Yeah, that is yeah. really nice. Yeah. All right. Well, guess what? That brings us to the end of episode 204 of the TechSnap program. We'd love to get your feedback, so go to jupiterbroadcasting.com. Click that contact link. Also, you can go to the subreddit, techsnap.reddit.com, and join us live. We won't be live next week, but following that, we're live at 1 p.m. Pacific over at jblive.tv, which is... Uh, going to change yes, on it is. Sunday, so <laughs> I how forgot does about that, that work? It's uh, It'll bring be... ahead, right? Right. right. Yes. So, gonna... so the UTC, so instead of 2100, it'll be 2000? That's not right. I don't know, Al. This is the worst part. We do have the calendar page that'll convert it. I mean, that's good. 2100 right. so UTC it'll be, it'll is be, No, it'll be 2000 UTC, right? Because it has been 2100. Yes, but be careful been. if you're in Europe. Your time zones don't. Your daylight savings time doesn't start for like two more weeks yes. compared to ours. It's gonna be weird so for a little while. All screwed up, man. Go figure. We're gonna be off the week that daylight savings hits. It's gonna mess people up. But uh, we'll be back. Just keep an eye on the calendar. JupiterBroadcasting.com/slash/calendar. It'll manage all of that for you. Because we'd love to have you join us live. Because we do stuff in between segments. We chat with the live stream between segments. I'm just help glad the this show. time that the time zone change happens before I leave for the conference. Yes. Uh, at Meet BSD every year, or every uh, second year when they have it, the time zone change is in the middle of the conference. That's horrible. One day of the conference oh. is, is in summertime, and the next day is in wintertime. Oh, Alan. So you lose an hour of sleep in the middle of a conference where you weren't getting enough sleep as it is. And traveling on top of it. Woo! Yeah. Woo! But yeah, it, yes, it would be worse if the daylight savings time happened on a day where you're actually traveling. Mm-hmm. That would be worse. Mm-hmm. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap. We'll see you right back here next week. <laughs>